Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready. We're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 172. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Gentlemen, 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 it is Code of Honor week. Robert's favorite. Robert's favorite, right? Robert is here today sitting in the captain's chair. We are at Studio M, Nakatomi Plaza, 30th floor, behind the waterfall, just down the hall from Ellis. Just down the hall from Ellis. Just down the hall from Ellis. And don't follow Takagi around after lunch. Right, he likes the kimchi. So, Code of Honor. Uh, so, this year, the last several months, we have been doing uh, quotes from the philosophers that we've been doing on our, our heroes, people you should know yeah. uh, episode, which is the third week. Of Famous the faces, fascinating Famous, yeah. faces, whatever. We still don't have anything better than, than yeah. our heroes, That's, even though they're not always heroes. It's right. still an argument. Yeah. You can't settle. Uh, well, nothing just sounds as good as our heroes, but even though that doesn't work. Uh, but so we're doing quotes from David Hume, uh, philosopher. He's he's uh, uh, one of the big names that we have to hit. Yeah. And you know, we like to do the quotes because it, it gives us a peek into the man before we really dive into him next week. It, it's the salad before the steak dinner. It's almost well, in many well, ways, but, it's the dessert before the steak dinner. It, to me, because I love this part. We love the part. Yeah, okay, I, you know, because I like to get in and tear the stuff apart. You know. Yeah, it's the aperitif before yeah. you pour that glass of cabernet. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, as our listeners know, uh, each one of us does a single quote. Uh, Martin or Francis goes first, and then the other one, and then I will follow with my uh, my large hammer. And hopefully drive the, uh, oh, the story home. Oh, yes. You have Mjolnir here. Yes. That's yes. right. He does. That's yes. right. So uh, my job is to take their quotes and tie them together with my quote into a coherent whole. Which, you know, the, the guys say I have not failed with that yet. I think I have come close to, uh, to a little failure. But uh, I managed at least to get in the ballpark and uh, on those. Listeners, are... trust me, Robert is worthy. <laughs> he can lift. That's right. He's lift Mjolnir. Mjolnir. Well, yes. He can lift Mjolnir. He's very worthy. If Jane Foster can lift it, that's right. That's right. Then definitely Robert can. So, which one of you guys is going to go first? Uh, he is. Oh, All right. Okay. So Martin yeah. is going first with his quote. He said in the show prep that I'm going to hate this. I, I think you're not only one of you are going to really like this quote very much. But uh, as soon as I read it, I, I discarded all others that I was considering. Um, Excellent. So. Here we go. I'll just go right to it. Celibacy, fasting, penance, mortification, self-denial, humility, silence, solitude, and the whole train of monkish virtues stupefy the understanding and harden the heart, obscure the fancy and sour the temper. A gloomy, harebrained enthusiast after his death may have a place in the calendar, but will scarcely ever be admitted when alive into intimacy and society, except by those who are, as, who are as delirious and dismal as himself. In other words, have fun. <laughs> Stop st- the self-denial. <coughs> the Eat, monkish. drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's talking about, you know... You're boring if you do all this stuff. The aesthetic practices. Well, you know, the say. thing that, that caught my ear, I get that too, but the yeah. thing that caught my ear uh, was early on in that quote, was basically doing all those stu- all that stuff. Uh, can, I, can I see your quote? Let me say, yes. out here, you have it right here. 
Uh, it was that. long, yeah. It was. Simplify the understanding and harden the heart. Obscure the fancy and sour the temper. I think that is totally, totally opposite of reality. Because uh, I think it is the, the to put it, uh, to turn a phrase, to use a turn of phrase, the uh, pleasures of the flesh are what obscure those things uh, quite often. Uh, because so s- self-denial strengthens yeah the, uh, yeah the now, understanding. I'm not saying he's taking the extreme you know when you what, what he's talking about there sounds like one of the desert monks yeah and yeah I'll tell you right now I agree none of those guys are getting invited to my next party <laughs> yeah uh, you know uh, granted you know I don't know any desert monks so that's a pretty easy easy bet uh, but what he's missing is that because obviously he's talking about Christian uh, saints uh, and those yeah, the people. Catholic saint who ends up on the calendar because of being right. a hermit specific in a cave. Of, but he, mean, he means it broader than that. Yeah. He would, he would, that that's the epitome for him, I would that's, say. That's, uh, from his experience. Yes. I mean, uh, there are, but the, the Buddhist monks would fit right into would that. Would fit into that as well, yes. Although he uh, had no experience with that. Yeah, we don't have, I don't know if they have a, have a day on their own calendar for that or not. Yeah. But, uh, it's, you know. but what I think he's missing is that for us, that self-denial opens up so many other possibilities because it's a very selfish point of view that to partake in those pleasures of the flesh. It's hedonism. It's, it, hedonism is a good way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, you know, a touch of hedonism here and there, sure, it's all good fun. But when it becomes your way of life, I think you become a slave to it. Ah, I think... Interesting. Yes, Interesting. Yes. Now, uh, Francis, you called him a sensualist. Yeah, as we right. were discussing over lunch, where we all had like two hamburgers and an ear of corn uh, and a lot of <laughs> chips. Yeah, they, they were, it was excellent. That's correct. So, uh, so no, they were small hamburgers. We're we're, we're not uh, practicing a lot of self denial either here. But well, no, uh, well, we're not desert monks, thank God. Was, I think the question of that quotation to me is about the the degree. That yeah. either its its statement itself or its antithesis, either one, tends to fall on. It's either every you're on one far end and it's all bad, as he says, mm-hmm. or you're on that same far end and it's all good, which you know the antithesis would be. I submit that very little of real life fits into that premise. Right. Well, and even desert monks who spend all day in contemplation. Uh, are do good and worthy things, sure, in my opinion, sure. because you know we obviously all of us we we tend to think of ourselves as intellectuals, mm-hmm. and for the most part, I'd say we're right. We Absolutely, we have our goofiness yeah. and and, and uh, other uh, pleasures of the flesh that we all enjoy, whether it be bourbon or whatever. Uh, but there is something inherently good in contemplating things that are greater than ourselves. And from uh, and I, I admit, I'm not terribly familiar with Hume's work myself. So I'm going a lot by the quotes that, that I'm seeing here. And the sense that I get from him is, one, he's, he's atheistic, so that he, there is no higher power for him. That's and correct, therefore, yeah. if there is no higher power, of course that's his point of view, because every atheist has that point of view. Every single one. Man is the highest good. Man, well, man of good. and pleasure that's is right. the highest good. Now, when I say every single one, that's probably an exact. There are probably some that that 
have some selfless yeah. uh, bits. But honestly, where do they get that? From the Judeo-Christian or whatever religious upbringing that they have. So, you know, even, you know they would deny it, but that's where that comes from. Some would, some would not. Uh, I, well, yes, yeah, some would. I'll some tell would you not. one that would pro- that, uh, and I've done a lot of, and I'll make a confession. Whenever I go on retreat, I'll often read the writers. Uh, atheistic writers just to kind of I suppose it's kind of like a beat myself over the head type of flagellation type of thing <laughs> but I, I, I really want to understand their argument I really do and, and it strengthens my understanding of of the higher power when I understand where they're coming from Christopher Hitchens is a magnificent writer he really is he know I mean Richard Dawkins who is often the other of course he's still alive Hitchens passed a few years ago Dawkins is mean He's in your face, and he, well, to put it bluntly, Dawkins is an asshole. That's I wasn't going to say it, but you're exactly right. Whereas Hitchens is very, very. Uh, if you read his book, God is not great. Uh, he 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 is usually spot on with his criticisms, and as he says, his only real goal is to be left alone. He doesn't want to be converted, and he doesn't want to convert you. He wants you to believe as you believe, and he wants to be able to believe as he believes. That's kind of not Hume here. Hume is more like. All and this is kind of the Dawkins assholery, if you will. All intelligent people believe this way, right? And well, that's, it's, it, I, that's I get that approach. You, yeah, and that's kind of where this is coming. Is yeah. you know only stupid people believe in aesthetic practice, aesthetic right. practices like. And I get that approach because if you go back in history, atheists or people who thought like him had disdain for religion. Uh, even if they, they might have believed in some higher power. Obviously, I don't think, if he does, I'd be shocked, or if did. But they would have been persecuted. That's correct. He had, he had to be very but, under the radar. Well, yeah, but still, the persecution he would have would have been more like, oh, well, that's going to kill your career, as opposed to burned at the stake. So, and, Mostly, and, that's right. And today, the persecution is non-existent. Most Christians, you know, even the Pope, is like, look, you can believe what you're going to believe. I think you know. Now, granted, Francis wouldn't say this, and, and I'm sure John Paul and, and Benedict wouldn't say this, even though they might think it. You, know, you believe what you want. You may go to hell for it, but that's your choice. And for the most part, uh, you know, uh, the uh, you know crazies aside on on, on the Christian side, uh, most Christians I think would be willing to say, look, you know, I, I, I fervently pray, yes, that you would come to find uh, the truth that we see. But if you don't, I can't force you into that we've come to but whereas the atheists especially like a Dawkins yeah and those who like to get get together and meet and talk about the fact that they don't believe in anything just astounds me uh, because really do you not believe in it because all you're doing is talk about what you don't believe in you, you kind of got to believe in that to, to, to get together well, yeah, and talk uh, about uh, it don't that's, you? that's nihilism and yeah I'm not I mean, sure that they're nihilism. still stuck in that oh my god we've been persecuted it's like those who are uh, Wiccans who talk about the you know the, the burning times when witches were... It's like, first of all, what you think is witchcraft is not what, what they were talking about. Right. And none of you have ever been burned. <laughs> it was 300 freaking years ago. Right. And it wasn't, for the most part, it wasn't even us, meaning the Catholics, that did that. You know, talk to the Protestants, because they always talk about, the, well, I guess, the Catholics who did all of that. No, it wasn't really us. Yeah. yeah. That was more... You know, the... the, the Again, I, yes, I, I picked this one deliberately to kind of push Robert Francis Buttons, but in reading about Hume too, he was not an extremist. 
he oh, didn't. No. He didn't like extremes. No, yeah, he he, he, he was very moderate. To, yeah, he, this he doesn't was, sound moderate, but he really was. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the original middle of the road Joe Manchin guy here, and nice one, nice. One. <laughs> really pulled that. Yeah, liked it. You know, a little bit of relate to something people are talking about. Um, so I just I just think this is a very funny way of saying it's okay to enjoy your life. It's okay, which he did. Um, you but know, he some seems of these to be things. saying, "I agree." He, that's what he's yeah. saying. But he also seems to be saying, "And if you don't, you're an idiot." That's right. That's you're that's the part that I is problematic. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's, the, it's the it's, religious freedom person in me bristles at that. Yeah, right? well, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, I, know, I get that. Yeah. you know, but I, I think he's 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 saying, you know, if that's the way you want to go, just understand. I, that's going to feel like the rest of us that you're grumpy and obstinate and not gonna look in a mirror lately. Yes, <laughs> he was Scottish. Remember this? That's oh, you're right. good point. Good point. Yes. Yeah. So Robert's joking about my reputation for grumpiness. Yeah. So, but I just love this turn of phrase. A gloomy, hair-brained enthusiast uh, will scarcely ever be admitted into intimacy in society. You know, it's just if you're going to do that, then understand you're not going to be a social butterfly. Right. But you know what? Again, to me, it goes to I think he's setting up a straw man. Oh, yeah. oh, sure. Absolutely. Sure. I get that. Because, yeah. You know, oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 They, they, they to me, his... that's what invalidates the argument. Yeah. Because they're yeah. not going to be in his circle doesn't mean they're not going to be in somebody else's circle. Right. But yeah, you're right. And, and someone who practices these things isn't necessarily a horrible person to others well right they well, can, they can very much bad. be a very he, he's, kind he's simply saying it's idiotic but it, it hardens the heart yeah you know, he's saying it you know specifically these values harden your heart rather than opening your heart to others and, you know and maybe coming from that him, scottish it, tradition yeah, yeah you know part of that is formed from the fact that it's there's going to be a lot of calvinism in, and in that background. See, that's a that's a very and valid deduction on his part if yes coming because from that calvinism yeah, is very, very hard harsh the, the the more strict calvinist you are the harsher your theology and honestly i think the, the more uh, nonsensical yeah uh, no, no offense meant to my my calvinist uh uh, uh friends because i do have some uh used to talk theology with one uh, when i was at lexmark years ago uh, matter of fact, a good friend of your brother. Yes, that's right. Uh, I remember. Uh, and we had a lot of great conversations because we had a differing view on free will. Yeah, very much so. And that's, and, you know, and if you if you look at that from a Calvinist lens, well, of course you're going to say it is the anti-Calvin. Well, yeah, and it's the anti-Calvin. That's right. That's what he's trying to be. Yeah. Which is, and that's that's the the stew that he lives in. That's that's the atmosphere yeah. that he yeah. survives yeah. in. So from with that particular tint tint on it. That makes perfect sense. He would say that, yeah. Uh, because, but there are many other ascetic practices. Uh, Catholicism is just the obvious one, but there are many others that don't lead to that uh, grumpiness and uh, harebrainedness. Right. I, I like that, by the way. Grumpy, yeah. harebrained. I think I'm going to try to use that as often yeah. as I can. Gloomy, harebrained enthusiast. That's yeah. it. Gloomy hair. He said, "Gloomy, harebrained enthusiasm." Yeah, so yeah. Well, and and that's why I say it's a straw man because when you look at Again, you take out the, the desert monk extreme, who I still say is, is performing an objective good because he's contemplating uh, the unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from our perspective, there is rarely a higher good than that 
coming from the intellectual. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, Cistercian experience is very similar to that, and there's, that's local to us. The Gethsemane yes. monks are Cistercians. They are a contemplative order. Uh, that's what they do. They pray consistently. Yeah. They also work. Yes. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're not a teaching order. They're a contemplative order. So that is exactly the value they bring. That's something that right. Hume is not considering, I don't think. Well, right. he's also knocking what is essentially the practice of theologians, which, again, is part and parcel of yes. what we, we are true. and do. And that's kind of But that is him. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. he does have issues with that. But, I mean, he is, he is an... Ex- his whole philosophy is about experience. Correct. It, and we'll talk about this more well, in the next episode. Uh, but ob- objective experience. Yes, I mean, he's talking about Meaning of the, the human experience. Yes, yes, right, yes, of the senses. Your, your, your perceptions and being a sensualist. There's, no, so, there's nothing that, you know, right, I mean, there's no hardware that comes, you know, you know, no OS embedded in you when yeah, you're born. It's that he's, complete, complete so he's not, he's not being a he's hedonist that's a, here. That's what he says. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, for us that would not be true. Right. No, no, but that's, so, that's, that's exactly so, what he's saying. Yeah, he's not being a hedonist here, but he's saying... To be alive, you you need to have these experiences around other people, and, and we would and, agree with that. And would, be yes. involved with other people. So this pulling yourself out of society, this you know mortification and self denial and all this isn't doing anything for you. Well, and again, be out there, be experiencing things. That's the way you're yeah, going to be more he's alive. He's not necessarily even seeing the potential purpose behind right. that. Right. Uh, and because you know, when he says mortification, he's probably talking about, you know, the, the, the middle-aged monk who's taking the uh, cat and nine tails and just, you know, flagellating, flagellating himself. himself. Right. And again, that's going to be much more what he's going to be familiar with from his... He's a book guy. Right. But and that's not a reality reader. thing. But at the time he's talking about this, that's well, not really a thing anymore. Well, but it, he would have been closer to it than he than someone what is now. This, what you, right, sure. But he was a seventeen seventy. Yeah, we didn't talk about this. So yeah, we'll, we'll so yes, he that, would have yeah. been that he would have been closer to that, and a lot of the things he talks about probably would have been more prevalent. Yeah. Uh, in, in his society, especially the the Calvinistic background in the seventeen fifties in Scotland. So Very yeah, I, I I agree with that, but I still think it's a straw man because, you know. Even then, you're. I mean, I think you're. You're right. It, people you're, from certainly our faith tradition and most uh, most of us. Yes. He's positing an extreme and then knocking down the extreme. Right. When the As extreme opposed, isn't really out there much. Right. It, it's so small of an example that it's yeah. really. Now you might say, well, what about you know, uh, Saint Augustine? You know, he'd be a great example of this. You yeah. know, but who who actually rejected everything that. Hume is, is positing as the good. So he's not talking about skipping meat on Friday here. Right. To me, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. But but skipping meat on Friday is a form of mortification, yeah. a form of self-sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. And the reason for that is not just the... It, it's multifold. Part of that is the to, to help us understand, understand and unite to the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Uh, which we can never fully do, but it's it's our way of participating in that. But it's also to f- to help us get, hopefully condition ourselves to be free of those uh, desires that do not matter. Sure, meat oh, is a great thing. Yes, yes. But it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all. Sex should not be the be-all, end-all. Money should not be the be-all, end-all. Alcohol 
well, bourbon. It's well, we'll, we'll skip that. Yeah, skip it. Uh, but it, it's to keep us. It, the be, this is, I think, a better way to put it. It's to keep us from turning in on ourselves. Yeah, and that's I think that's you the see point. that you see these virtues as a way of building character. Yes. that he did not see. And when you do that, it opens you up for interaction with others because you're not focused on you. Yeah. And what's good for you alone. And that's why I think he misses the mark. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, a, a vigilant uh, sensualism inevitably leads to self-centered and potentially narcissism. Yeah. I love. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah. I, I think you know, that down that road yes. is, is narcissism. He wouldn't see that because he'd say, you know, well, you're around all these other people. What I'm wanting you to be is around all these other people. And, but that's and, what a narcissist will do. Yeah, it's not a narcissist is not going to be alone. He's going to want to be around other he people wants, so they can compliment him and, right. and do things. That for reflected him. glory is the point. Yes. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. That, that, that's a great, great point there, Francis. That's a, that's are we a, ready to turn it over to Francis? For yes. Well, I don't know. Are we? I uh, think so. I think okay, we okay, did it's your, your quote. I know we did 20 minutes on it, so it's yeah, pretty okay, excellent. Yeah, let's we, let's yeah. rock and roll well, with Francis yeah. here. Yeah, because we still got to get a bourbon break in after that, and then I've got to figure out what the hell I'm going to say. Yeah, I am go- I'm, I'm going to go completely different, of course. Uh, and this kind of goes back to the that sensualism that uh, Hume was famous for, that sense experience. This okay. kind of talks into that. Uh, and, and I like this uh, this quotation in many respects uh, because it, it really does, it, it, spe- it speaks a truth, which I think we'll all agree on. But I do believe it also puts into it a little bit of a, well, I'll just give it to you. It's very brief. Okay. Hit us. Beauty in things exists in the mind which contemplates them. I, I saw that quote, yes. Uh, yes. Beauty in things exists in the mind which contemplates them. Very brief. Uh, you could say, I don't want to go so far as to say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's similar. Yes, I mean, that, that's, 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 that's sort of that. where that it, comes from, This yes. does not have that spin of relativism to it. This recognizes that beauty <coughs> has to be in itself. The concept of beauty is ultimately something that is a that comes from within a person. Yeah, a human. it's very personalized. Um, what you find beautiful has to, in some manner or another, ring your bells. Yes, but which, I think it's is, deeper which, than that. I well, think but it's, it's right because your your what's appealing. Is then based on experiences. That's Hume, very much so. But and here's here's it, it is not an individual experience here. Uh, Repeat I, your quote, uh, oh, please, if you would. Yeah, yeah. Uh, make sure I get it right. Beauty in things exists in the mind which contemplates them. In other words, the concept of beauty is an internal function for us. That's how I that's how I read this. Is how I yes. view this. Mm-hmm. Even though it is common. Because I mean, you can. We all have a common understanding of beauty uh, that is no. not. It's not complete, but the Sistine Chapel is inarguably beautiful. I would think. A well, beautiful, but again, not universally. 
Perhaps, and I'm, I'm willing so, to. So yeah, I would say that for the most part, there are many. I, mostly, I would call that a true statement, but I don't think that's always going to be true because a Muslim would go and look at that and say, "Oh my God, this is a travesty! You're d- depicting God," and that's that's a big no-no. No. Uh, so I mean, that'd be a great example of how, arguably, the 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 Sistine Chapel is not beautiful because of that. But to us, it would be simply because of, of for most, so for many reasons. But you know, but there's a truth in that too. That's that's very, I'm pronounce this correctly, Humean. Oh, nice. Okay, nice one. In that again, he would say that's perfectly legitimate. Yes, yes. Because right. that is the Muslims' experience and perspective. Experience. Yeah, right. Perspective that's where I was. Experience. Why I brought that up because I think he was going in a way that Hume would not agree with is because right the beauty is not absolute right um, but but I but read it is his common, quote though it is common well the idea of beauty is common yes it, well if we're, and that's but that's for, what for those about here. for those with common experiences are going to find similar, similar notions of beauty but for those with differentiating experiences or core values or Yes, and and your va- to Hume, your values would be built around your experiences, yes. what you've sensed. Um, then for those, those would not have the same core concepts of beauty, you know. And and for Robert the artist here, you know, I think of somebody like say Francis Bacon, uh, you know, a, kind of the post-impressionist era uh, of of art. You know, you look at this, and it's striking and sometimes even frightening but there are people who find it beautiful right and it's still considered art you know that famous my example of that is Jackson Pollock yeah yeah that's, yeah. that's a good example you know, I don't he's know the guy yeah I know what I like and it's you know this isn't it but there are smart people who say yes this is beautiful but when you look at a Francis Bacon painting or a Jackson Pollock it's like there's nothing here, right? There's nothing uplifting. There's nothing glorifying here. And oddly enough, I think Hume would would look at those and think that's crap. That's crap because um, but the, he but would not the, be able to yeah. uh, because there's nothing there. Yeah, there's the notion of, of art being uplifting and glorifying though is a Western one. It is. It is a Western Christian tradition. Yeah, and, it, and it and probably is not that, just Western Christian because I think that's probably. Similar notions to that will probably be found in almost all cultures that, that have artistic expression beyond a, a utilitarian use of it. Right. Because uh, very, very, it's very rare to find a, just a utilitarian expression of art. Yeah. Uh, but it, that would be... I, I, the, the Muslim concept of art is pretty close because, yes. I mean, it's sword arches and right, right. onion domes and things like that that... Right. Are very utilitarian, but I think you're right. In, in an Eastern perception too, there would be yeah. art should be uplifting, and there's there's some overlap in the concept of beauty between East and right, West. Right, and, right. and well, there's a lot of commonality in cultures there that we we, we fail to recognize often. Yeah, uh, which is a shame. Yeah, that even even Hindu culture, the, a lot of the iconography is still similar to Western. Yes. Yes, I used iconography like uh, Trevor Slattery. 
Very good. You did. Yes, very good. Yes. <laughs> very good. I, I noted the use of it, but I, I wanted that. to hear where you were going with it. That's, yes. Very good. Yes. So what I what I find interesting about your quote and the way the discussion has gone is I hear the quote and the what I hear is this. So beauty exists. It was I don't know if it was only or if it just just exists in the mind of he who contemplates it or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Right. So. What that says to me is a couple of things. One is that beauty is intangible. Certainly. Certainly. Uh, I think we have to go you there. You can't pick it up. It is a concept. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we concept. even say that about you, you know, other people. I mean, there's outward beauty and then there's inner beauty. And certainly you could be attracted to someone who, by most standards, would be physically unattractive. Right. But you're attracted to that person because of character or intellect or whatever. Right. I mean... You or because they're funny. Yeah. Right. I mean... Would I rather speak to Mayim Bialik or Paris Hilton? Paris Hilton's objectively a very attractive woman. But from all descriptions... I'd rather... She's a goofball. Yeah. Mayim Bialik's a genuine neuroscientist who, by most standards of beauty, is is not a super attractive woman, but would certainly be a hell of a lot more interesting to talk to. Right, right. So... This whole idea that, to me, you know, he's, he's, he's acknowledging that beauty is intangible uh, and also acknowledging that it can only, I don't say exist, because I think that's not true, because for us, beauty is an objective reality. Uh, you know, truth and beauty are linked, and because we also believe in objective truth, there is objective beauty. Uh, which I'm sure he would disagree with. Right. I mean, then Hume would be disconnecting those concepts. Right. Completely. And I get that. I get that. Right, Francis. So. I think so. Really, yeah. uh, and, I, and I and I do. I get that. But even so, truth and beauty are both intangible. So in many ways, you can't separate them. And and we've and hammered on the concept of truth many times. We have. Yes. Whether you you know uh, uh, an absolutist notion of truth or a Nietzschean note. Uh, you know, truth flows from power. <laughs> yeah, right. that, those kind of concepts. But right? ultimately, yeah, you're right. It is, and this is very platonic in its approach. Is back to the forms. There, there's no such thing as a. Uh, there's only examples of beauty. There is not beauty itself. There is no such thing. There are examples of truth, but there is no such thing as truth itself, other than intellectually, conceptually. Philosophically, I would agree. The only place where I would disagree with that is when we start talking theologically, for us, because. Truth and beauty being uh, very nearly equivalent, we're talking something that is godlike. That's correct. So, but those yeah. concepts then have to be rooted in faith. Yes, yes, or natural reason. We would also argue, but that's an entirely other argument. Oh, natural reason. Yes, Hume would kick that in the ass. Yeah. Well, he he would try. He would try. Uh, so, so. Yeah, yeah. He was. He was. He's definitely. He's. He's a very. I don't want to say anti-reason, but in many respects, yeah. He. he well, says it's. It's. It's a. It's fallacy. The whole concept of reason is a reason is a fallacy, yeah. which is odd because much of what he says is is uh, the quotes that I'm seeing is presented as uh, reason, you know, as a reasonable statement, as a, a yeah. reasoned out uh, conjecture. Yeah, yeah. he would use the word odd. custom. That's basically that's yeah. how we talk. That's yeah. why he. That's why he. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we'll a good philosopher that. always has an answer for something. Right. Yeah, so that's, we'll get into all that in the next episode yeah. too. So, so you know. I, I, that's to me that was an interesting quote because I saw that. Oh, that that's interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. That's why I picked it. Yeah, because I knew um, that, that it's just uh, the concept of beauty. And you you could have said truth. He could have. Yes. Uh, but I, well, like I think said, truth is harder to, to to agree with. There. Yeah. Beauty, absolutely. I would I would agree. 
because it is intangible. Um, and, and to a large degree, it is in the eye of the beholder, but I think it's less in the eye of the beholder mm-hmm. as it is this is only some people, and probably everybody, can only yeah. perceive a small portion of what is beauty at a time. Absolutely. Just like we cannot conceive the totality of truth, we cannot conceive and contemplate the totality of what is beauty. Absolutely, because beauty is beyond simple uh, quantification. Yeah, I was just about to say it is not quantifiable. Not quantifiable. It's a, yes. And, you know, it, it's interesting. He does. He says beauty in things in the quote here. Not beauty as a concept. He does say beauty yes. in things. So he is speaking of examples. Right, right. And yeah, and, and that's why I think beauty in the, is in the eye of the beholder flows from this. But even that, I, I don't think it's true. Because beauty in things... I think still can work with my idea of we're only able to contemplate a portion of beauty. Because our own finite nature, uh, even no matter how vast it might be, is uh, it pales in comparison infinitesimally. Yeah. I, I was trying to impress you with that, but I kind of stumbled. No, I think you did there. fine. Did yeah. fine with it. Uh, fits compared to the, the, the right. enormous, enormity of beauty itself. To use a practical example that Martin did. So, Maya Bialik, she is not the standard of Hollywood beauty. Uh, although when she was younger, you know, before she uh, got to be, because I mean, she's now middle-aged. She's... I think Maya Bialik is beautiful. I do too, I'm but totally what most her. people, so most people though would look at her and say, well, she's kind of plain. You know, she dresses kind of frumpy when you see her on, on uh, uh, Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, you know, she, it's like, well, she's just dressing as Amy. <laughs> oh, well, maybe that's how she actually dresses. Uh, I don't know, but you know, would she? Amy did not wear makeup on the show, so she, you know her primary uh, visual for most people is a, is a relatively plain woman. But you know, she does the whole makeup. Makeup covers a, a, a lot of things, you know. And I'm saying women have to wear makeup to be beautiful. Um, but she can even though have a bit of that glamour kind of beauty. But somebody who is purely into the aesthetics will say, eh. Does nothing for me. I think she's ugly, which I think would be a, a very much a disservice to her. Whereas somebody else might say, "Oh my God, she is brilliant." Well, which and admire yeah, objectively so the, yeah. the beauty of that, because yeah. oh, you, there is absolutely. beauty in intellect. There's beauty, oh. and that's where I think truth and beauty are related. Beauty uh, and intellect. Thank you, Robert. I think what you've got, what what you what you have here is so certainly again. I agree. I, I find her outstanding, and I'm thrilled that she got a permanent job uh, on Jeopardy, and I love her. Yep, and, she's great, and you know she's really she is good at being an actress. I mean, you know, the Blossom thing. That's when she's a teenager. You say, well, you know, cute teen, <laughs> blah blah blah. But she was great as Amy, and actually that show, Call Me Cat, which is set here in Louisville. Yes, it's not necessarily stupendously funny. It's certainly not Big Bang. Uh, very funny, but it's it's kind of funny, you know. It's not uh, knee slapping kind of thing. Uh, I like the fact that she breaks the fourth wall occasionally, because uh, she made she made a joke about uh, hosting Jeopardy uh, mm-hmm. in one episode. I haven't watched a whole lot of it, but I've seen them just because it's set here. You know, yeah. want to see how they they treat that. Uh, so she's good at that craft too, which to me is a form of beauty. Yeah, I think I cut you off, Francis. I think no, you were saying something. I was going to say it's time for a bourbon break. Oh, excellent. Hey, that's my job. I was just... Captain. I'm noting it, yes, exactly. But you know what? It is time for a bourbon break. I thought you might appreciate that, yes. 
So is your glass empty? Can I uh, no, I still have I still have a, a little bit of uh, bourbon here. This is the uh, uh, the Granddad One Fourteen. Yeah, old Granddad One Fourteen. Um, so uh, we talked about this last episode, and I am finding that the peppery flavor mm-hmm. that I noted before has become stronger to me. Uh, it's almost too overpowering. I was going to say that's a bad thing. It's, I'm yes. Say, yes. So. Uh, as Martin said, well, maybe some ice to, to chill it back and uh, or to dilute. Yeah, another uh, couple of ice cubes would have would have evened it out. Yeah, and not made it so strong at the finish. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's almost like the the melting of the ice, uh, a very slow progression, just built up that peppery because it wasn't there at the beginning, like I am finding it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still good, but at this particular stage of its flavor, I wouldn't call this my go-to or a go-to. Just because it's very peppery to me, very spicy, still good. Francis, what about you, uh, man? Yeah, I think you're still working. I'm the still working on the granddad. same on the same thing. Uh, with with ice in it, it 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 damps it down a little bit. Uh, I it's it's still it's still in the mouth. Yeah. Oh yes. It's good. It's, it's very mm-hmm. much it's very much there. Uh, 114 proof. That's high. That gives me that a, is. gives me a headache. Uh, I can't do them high proof things. It just uh, I could sit here and drink this eighty proof stuff like it's Kool Aid, and and all afternoon, and, and I'm cool. But you start throwing out a hundred, hundred, ten, hundred fourteen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're gonna have to slow down on that. I don't mean I don't mean in a drunken way. I mean it's actual. I have a sinus headache, which I hate sinus headaches. You know, that sort of thing. That's what this is. I don't know why that is, but the higher proofs do that to me. So. Um, next, I'll, I'll, I'll dampen it down a little bit for the next go around. I'll pour you some wild turkey or something that's a little lower proof for you. Absolutely. Man. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's just kind of where I like to live. Uh, it just makes the yeah. most sense. Uh, it's not harsh. Uh, the, the, the old Grand Ed 114, it's, it's, got a, it's got a bite, but a, a mild, smooth bite. But it is one we would recommend. Oh, of course. Listeners, give that a try. Yeah, there's very few that we've said don't do this one on. Uh, I think Jefferson's that one Jefferson that you had like, uh, and you have you have commented on which one's the one that you said tastes like medicine to you. Uh, the Buffalo Trace tastes like toothpaste and medicine to me. Uh, I don't care for it. Bjorn, uh, again, this is the downside of having a an offspring who works at a liquor store. Bjorn is exploring bourbon himself. Well, he's also just turned of age, you know, in the last yes. many months. So he uh, he likes the. Uh, Buffalo Trace. He did not find it toothpastey. Uh, I have just poured. Uh, I I finished my old granddad. I, I put considerably more ice than the other fellas did, so mine's a little more watered down. I was but, say that may make a big difference. Yeah. So I, yeah. I finished my one fourteen, and I have poured a, a small small dose of the Green River that I have on the shelf. Ah. Um, my uh, again because of Bjorn. Uh, my collection is fairly expansive, almost to Sage of Roberts. I noticed that it had grown considerably. I was yeah, quite surprised. So, usually, you've got one or two bottles that were yeah, desperately I mean, trying to finish off. Yes, the, yeah. I mean, I might buy another one until they're gone. Yeah, yeah. I might have as That's many changed. as four bottles or something. But now I've got seven. Um, but the Green River is the one that I noted uh, had some licorice flavor to it, and I'm enjoying it. I really like it. So it's another recommend uh, for me. So I think that concludes Bourbon Break. You ready, Robert? Uh, sort of, maybe. I don't know. There, There is so much. He was prolific. Yeah. Yes, he was. Very much so. And and wise. I mean, if you read through, just do a quick, uh, quick Google search yeah. of 
David Hume quotes, and you're going to come up with lots of really good stuff. And so. it, his career was quite lengthy. Uh, I mean, he, he lived to be 65, was it? Which doesn't seem like a long time to us, but yeah, that's, that's, he began uh, a, a, quote, college education at, like, age 14. So, I mean, he's writing... College education back like, then was, you know, not what we're talking about today, though. Yeah, but, I mean, he was essentially admitted to, what was it, uh, Francis, was it Oxford or someplace? Uh, yes, I and, think most and, likely, yeah. Born so, I mean, you're talking about someone who wrote for 35 to 40 years right? Uh, uh, as a published author uh, for quite some time. So, there's a ton of material here. Yeah. So, I think what I'm going to go with is, uh, it's a very short one, and talks about the nature of truth. So, the reason I'm picking this particular one is it's going to be a very roundabout way to tie these together because you guys have given me a real challenge here. (laughs) Although, honestly, the thing about uh, beauty existing in uh, the the, the mind of the one who contemplates it uh, is very much... uh, Almost a, a, a companion statement to your. So let's, as I like to do, let's reread yes, the quotes. I thought you would want that. Yes. So celibacy, fasting, penance, mortification, self-denial, humility, silence, solitude, and the whole train of monkish virtues stupefy the understanding and harden the heart, obscure the fancy and sour the temper. A gloomy, harebrained enthusiast, after his death, may have a place in the calendar but will scarcely ever be admitted when alive into intimacy and society, except by those who are as delirious and dismal as himself. Of course, my, my first thought to that real quick is, the, the Catholic response is, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So, yeah. Uh, anyways. Uh, mine is much shorter, as yes. we remember. Beauty in things exists in the mind which contemplates them. Yes. So, the thing I'd like to point out here, which I didn't when we were talking about this before. So, Martin's statement is a great example of the truth of Francis's statement. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. that, that there is beauty in the aesthetic virtues Yes, that he doesn't see. Right, because his mind cannot contemplate those, uh, whether you want to talk about as contemplate them or cannot conceive them. Because Hume did not like to push himself away from the table. Right. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's uh... yeah. Well, that's a hard thing to do. Granted, you know, yeah. uh, we that's are all reason. sensualists in a way. He was well liked in his time. You would think, with his atheistic tendencies, he would have become anathema, particularly in this era of religious upheaval. Well, and, but when you're also the guy who's pushing, you know, here, have another drink, have another uh, turkey leg, you know, <laughs> you're going to be more liked than not. Well, that's and that's that's kind of it. That's yeah. one of the which is kind of his point. Yeah, yeah, right. And he did have a social circle that he enjoyed, yeah. and who reciprocated um, that enjoyment and helped his career. Yeah, and I wonder what he would think because if you try to take that that expression, if he were to live today what he would say because I find it hard to believe he would start out with that description of, of you know the, the monkish attitudes and all that yeah, yeah. in the same way because that is not could you give me one of those please uh, Francis was getting up to get a uh, little Debbie uh, little Debbie little Debbie has not made an appearance on an, uh, on an episode in a while no well, we've well, missed we're, Debbie we're all eating her up right now because yeah. we've got plenty of them here um, but you know 
I wonder if it, it, maybe my my dislike of, of that or thinking of that as being a straw man is that in this day and age it is a straw man. Yeah. In that age, maybe it wasn't a straw yeah. man. Yeah. And so I will I will give him that. All so, right. Let's have your quote. So my quote is this, and I and I think snakes and otters itself proves this quote. Oh, I think I know which one you picked because uh, I think I love this one. The truth springs from arguments amongst friends. <laughs> a perfect quotation, yes. Yes, yes. I thought so much of using that one. I said, uh, no, I got to keep looking. And I, yeah, obviously. I love it, though. Yeah, obviously, that's what this entire show is about. Although, I would not call them arguments in the sense that we think about it today. No. Because right. in his day, arguments could have just meant a discussion like we were having now. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's like an apology is not saying I'm sorry. It's an argument for something. Right. Yes. So, yes. For him, yes. it was the discussion. It was the delving yes. deep into the it, ideas. Yeah, the Algonquin Roundtable, the Salon, the Paris Salon. Yes. Uh, you know, the Hemingway's Table in Paris. That kind um, of thing. Of yeah, the inklings sitting, for the, talking. Yeah, yeah, sitting around and, and talking about things and having a glass of wine and, you know, yeah, you're full of it. Right. It's <laughs> like, well, you can't just say that, you asshole. you got to tell me why I'm full of it. Yes, it's sharpen, uh, sharpen the argument. Right. And that's the reason I chose not just you know to, to blow smoke up our own rear ends, because we do that often enough anyways. I don't need a, a specific case for that. But it, it kind of... Your two quotes are exactly this. Yeah. Uh, this is probably the, the most... Uh, concrete connection between our quotes in that sense. Yes, I, I agree. And, you know, if not philosophically, in the sense that I usually can say, well, the meaning right is tied together. Uh, so much as really all of this is this. All of our discussion is this search for truth. Yeah. Whether it's or talk- beauty or beauty, yeah. because to us it's it's there is yeah. a not necessarily a, an exact one to one in the hum, you know humanitarian sense or human sense, uh, but th- there is a strong correlation, not just causation. Absolutely, yes. Uh, causation and correlation. Uh, so that search for truth, because we are finite creatures, has to be done this way. Because there isn't, there's very rarely. A case where God comes down and says, "This is it," and even then, a generation, or even within that same generation, ten minutes later, those same people are worshiping a golden calf. You know, <laughs> yeah, very well put, very well put. That's right, exactly. Uh, oh, I'm so glad you went there. I, so, I knew you. I said, "I do it. I do it. Do so it. Do the most." Even Moses. when you know, even when they. The, you know, he's, he's, just, he's just come down from the mountain and told you about the burning bush and has these 15, no, no 10, 10, 10 commandments. You're still you're still melting gold and making it into a calf. Yeah. What's wrong with I you mean, Technically, that's what was going on while he was up there. But he says, look, God says this. I was like, when I come back down from this mountain, i got to have the rules straight from God. So you think, oh, yeah, this is great. We're going to prepare. We're ready for it. No, with it, they're having an orgy around a golden statue of a calf. It's like, yeah, that is not. So, and these are believers. These are believers. Yeah, so they said. So they said. So, yeah, because we are finite, because we make mistakes, because we only can contemplate an aspect of what is beauty. 
And because we can only conceive of certain things, you know, we can only understand certain things. Hume couldn't understand the good in contemplating other things, of in self-denial, whereas we can't see the good in total hedonism. I mean, beyond the, the passing, when I say good, I mean like capital G good, right. that eternal question kind of good mm-hmm. that snakes and otters is about. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. Um, and so, to me, this is uh, there's been two or three quotes that we've come up with uh, throughout the years that we've been doing this, and this is another one of those that could be the slogan for snakes and otters, besides an eternal discussion, or a pointless discussion yeah, of eternal truth. Place. It's the same damn thing. Yes, it but is. It it's is. the same damn thing. Yeah. And how, how you arrive at truth is an argument among friends. Yeah. That's right. And, and again, not get, argument as in contention. You can't, you can't get there any other way. Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's how big. science is done. Although Hopefully it's usually it a lot is. more combative. Yeah. yeah, but there's a... Uh, there's, there's a concept underlying that of goodwill. Yes. That you're... You know, here we go again talking about our current moment. You know, if you're not willing to allow for some goodwill, then you're not going to convince anyone. Exactly. Your argument's pointless. You're just screaming at each other. Yep. Your argument could be the most beautiful, eloquent thing ever. But if you're not going to allow goodwill on the party of the other person, it's farting in the wind. Yeah, and it's very much where we are of, you know, if you don't agree with someone, then just automatically go, well, you're a fascist. You know, you're grumble, 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 you're a fascist. Um, that's unhelpful. Yeah, That's unhelpful. Um, you know, again, in the wake of the, um, of the uh, Mississippi decision was a lot of, well, you know, F this and F that. Well, that's unhelpful. If you want to make an argument for your position, then you have to extend some goodwill to the other side and make a, an argument. Make, ultimately, you're about, lay out, lay out you're a reason. You're supposed to be about conversion. Well, you know, nobody's converted by your yelling at them. Exactly. Absolutely nobody. Exactly. So... <clears throat> It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that we have today because we have abandoned this as a culture. Because we no longer have... Um, I, I, we never, we no longer have a populace that understands what words mean. Yeah. <clears throat> well, they've been conditioned so, to think otherwise sometimes. Right. And, by what, and my specific example is this, because is, I already mentioned it, is the word argument. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be understood that it does not mean to yell and scream. You know, we talk about, you know, well, my parents had an argument last night. Well, immediately think they were yelling and screaming at each other. Or at least in my family, that's what it meant. Um, but in general, we, we think there's anger involved. That's not what argument should mean. No. I mean, it could mean that. It, it could it mean that. In the public it square, it should always mean that. Especially in the public square. That's it's exactly, not what it should mean. That's right. So, because we have lost what should be a fuller meaning of the word, the contention we currently see is a result of that. Because when we make an argument, that automatically means we're fighting. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem. Because like you said, 
it means there's no goodwill. You cannot think right. the other person is arguing in good faith. Whether you think their argument is bullshit or not. Because I can I, I can have a discussion with somebody and think their argument is total BS. But I can still discuss it with them. But when you... when Extend you, a little grace. Exactly. Hear them out. Because, as Francis likes to note, if you understand their argument, it sharpens the blade of your own argument. Well, hopefully so. And, and again, right. in the argument of... Or in the in the definition of argument, meaning I'm constructing a case to attempt to persuade you, right. and we're That's not correct. just yelling the f word at each That's other. Right. Well, the intention also is, and this is I think very, this is part of God, I think, and its antithesis is of, of is not, is that we're attempting to bring each everyone together into what we believe is a good place for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very altruistic. It's supposed to be that. Yeah. But, for whatever reason, plurality is not seen as a good in and of itself any longer. That's a Lockean theme, because he was all about that. Yeah. Uh, And that's, in fact, that's a Jeffersonian theme, too, is we don't, we recognize nobody's going to ever agree. We just need enough people to agree that we're getting along. We just need enough people to get along. That's what... That no longer, uh, that's a problem. That's the enemy in many respects. Yeah. Public well, discourse is getting along. That should is. be the goal, but it well, never is. is. It's about destroying the other side. Right, because we've gotten to the point where, and this is probably true for, again, you know, I've said it before, and for me this is very un-me. Because for the most part, I'm a generally positive person. I'm a generally positive yes. outlook on life. Absolutely. But... The logical conclusion I see from society today is that we cannot come back from where we are without a major upheaval of some kind. Mm. Because we are at the point where we have to win. Nobody likes to lose, but that expression implies, well, yeah, you know, it could happen and we'll have to deal with it. Well, they recognize there's always another battle down the road. Right. Used to. Now, it's, we have to win at all costs. Because losing seems to be, that means death. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's, to me, that's a stupid argument. Very much so. It's right. everything Incredibly is, stupid. Everything is always for all the marbles. Yeah. And no, that's not the case. Because we can't construct an argument that says, okay, we can revisit this. You're right. It, everything seems to be... Why can't we find a it's solution? It's all life or death. Yeah. It's all, Why can't every, we find a solution yeah. where everybody wins? Every every issue is life or death right now, this minute, and we must win at all costs. Well, yeah, because winning means... Winning is an absolute. And it used to be that to win was, I don't get everything I want, but I got enough. You didn't get everything you wanted, but you got enough. That's a win-win. That's no longer the issue. Now is it's it's 100 and 0. Yes. It's the only acceptable solution. Versus 50 to 50. Or 40 to 60 or whatever that is. The inability of everyone outside their core group. And I would posit that outside of rare examples like us, because yes, I will pat myself on the back along with you guys in this, is that it is rare that a group of people can sit down and actually discuss Either meaning of life stuff, which is where we tend to go a lot. That's right. Yeah. It's part of the slogan. <laughs> Pointless discussion of eternal questions. Um, 
or even just sit down and talk about possible solutions to problems. And we're all relatively similar. We're not exactly alike. We all have our differences that make us all better. Yeah. Which I think is the ideal. That's why I think this group is phenomenal. But as a whole, once you bring in somebody in society, once you bring in somebody that has a differing opinion on anything, it's disruptive. It is no longer additive. It is subtractive. Mm. And people who can't sit around and figure out the truth by arguing amongst friends, mm-hmm. has doomed society. Yeah, I know that's a very negative approach to things, and you know, but I honestly have a hard time seeing how we step back from the precipice that we are at. Uh, and ultimately, what this is—the inability to discover truth by arguing amongst friends—at the core, yeah, is inherently. Not respecting the inherent dignity of the human person. Of course, you know, absolutely. That, that's what it goes we back. Always to. go back to that. I yeah. I know that's where I can, I can tie anything into that, but honestly, to me, that's what it is. Yeah. Right. Because when you cannot admit the goodwill of right. others, that's right. Well, you um, you dehumanize them. It's a sociopathic way of looking at life. Yes, yeah, very true. It is, and again, decry the whole notion of no one wants to make a reasoned argument anymore. Yeah, it's all just call everybody a fascist and. And 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 somehow that invalidates the position. It's like, but win me over. Right. Why will you not even try to win me over? I wish I could remember the the, the name of the uh, internet term was. It's sooner or later the argument ends when somebody invokes the the, the Nazism. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's, that's no longer soon, true. Yeah, that's right. Sooner or later. Uh, it used to be that took eight, ten steps to get there, and that's when everybody says, "Okay, we're out of here," because there's no more discussion anymore. Right. That's whereas just three or four years ago, that was step eight or nine or ten in the argument. Now it's that's two step and, one. It's two and three. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's it's immediate. You're a fascist. Well, you're not winning me over. You you know if you want to win, you have to convert. That's right, and, and that requires and just repeating your your sides. Position over and over isn't going to do it. Well, and that because and everybody does this. This is not a leftist thing or a right thing. Not at all. Or even a centrist thing. Even the centrists are bad at this. You know, they're probably less bad because, although honestly, I think they piss off everybody else because you know they're not right enough or they're not left enough. Yeah, so I mean, both sides are well in a polarized yeah. society. That's you're right. That's correct. Which is what we're living in. Yeah. What you'll find though, usually, is that. Nobody wants anybody else to have anything. It's, there's a very self-centeredness to this, and I think yeah. that's what's dooming us in many yeah. ways. I, I, I want to uh, before I lose this, and I know we're getting close to time here to wrap it up, but I want to make mention of a book that I was recommended to me two weeks ago that you guys need to read. I've already gotten it from uh, by David French mm-hmm. is the name of the author. Uh-huh. Uh, I know and, I, I've heard of him. I'm not yes, uh, he is a, 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 an amazing talent. Uh, and his and I'm, uh, while I'm sitting here talking through this, I'm going to pull up uh, the actual name of the book so I can give it to you. Uh, but he's talking about what it would take for there to be uh, a secession, uh, a modern day uh, breaking apart of the United States. And he makes a very cogent argument. And all that we've just been talking about is the reason why. He says right. we can no longer abide. We are so polarized. And it is geographic now. It's become that. Mm-hmm. Red versus blue. Uh, Divided We Fall is the name of the book. America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. 
uh, I highly recommend this book. Uh, the three scenarios he gives for actual secession, to me, he builds in certain Im almost impossibilities, uh, that it, which does give me hope because I realized in order for this to really happen, you got to have some extreme things happening, which he puts in the scenarios, but ultimately that might be 50, 60 years in the future. Not, uh, not impossible. But it's very, very worth discussing the fact that we cannot agree on so many things. And maybe the, because we are no longer willing to get along, this might be the inevitable result. And that's and he and he, did, he goes even goes into the details of there's no there's no reason to stay together unlike there was at the Civil War where we had a vested interest in staying unified. But well, <clears throat> from a secessionist standpoint, they standpoint, said, did we? Did well, that's I correct. Mean, that's the argument. I, well, even from a unionist side. Other than the fact that we think we are stronger together, you know, all of the flaws of, of the slave states aside, why did we have to stay together? Well, and that's it, it eventually became its own thing. It took mm -hmm. on a life of its own. Right. Uh, and a lot of that is Lincoln. No question right. that that was what he did. Yeah. Uh, French's argument is we don't. And don't get me wrong. I'm I'm glad we did not that's break apart. Correct. We are we are better for yeah. it. Uh, uh, I don't know that we could have taken on. Nazi Germany. No, we couldn't. To the have, no. uh, or to the extent that we did. So you know, there's all that. But French's argument is more or less like we probably won't in the long term. We probably there will be three countries where there are now one. Oh, three. Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, geographically speaking, you have the West Coast, you have the Northeast, and the rest. That's where he sees this going for various reasons. That's, uh, and Chicago's going to be screwed because they're in the middle of the red. Well, and that's part of the problem. And they're extremely they're blue. Again, he has three <clears> different <throat> scenarios, uh, one of which is California seceding and then the rest of it, and that's where that ends. Another one is Texas seceding if things go differently the other way. And that, uh, again... Texas, I think, is one of those states that actually has, has a case for secession, mm -hmm. being they were an independent country prior to joining. Right. So it's, now, it's a fascinating uh, study. Like I say, I think he's a prophet. Uh, I think, I don't know that our lives, in our lifetime, uh, in our mid-50s, that we'll see this happen, but I bet our grandchildren will. They will eventually realize, you know, we're just too different. Well, if there's one of those societal catastrophes that I've talked about as a trigger, yes. It, well, ultimately, that <clears throat> there is some of that in there. Whether it be uh, a natural disaster, uh, a, a, a you know worse depression than we saw in the 30s, uh, or military issue, you know, whether you know, like an EMP or whatever, right. or solar flare knocks out the grid, whatever, something that causes mass catastrophic events. The scenarios he gives are all of our own making, right? Which is very interesting. It doesn't have any of those type things in it. It's more about uh, California enacts an extreme gun law and begins confiscation, and from there they are not willing to back away from that. The Supreme Court says you can't do that. They say, watch me, and things. It. it, it Builds in the inability to compromise as the, as the Shakespearean flaw. So that would be an interesting case to, to see what would happen because it's, theoretically it's, at that point, it's probably the, the most, feds could send in troops. Well, that's exactly what happens in his yeah. scenario. And of course, eventually it gets to the point where people, where in that case, a Republican president says, well, you know, if they go, I win every election forever. So, uh, see, <laughs> there's a lot there, of truth, there's to, some that. truth to that. So that's uh, there's a vested interest here. That's fascinating. It's a fascinating thought study. Uh, I encourage you to read it, readers. If you haven't got a chance, again, David French, uh, look it up. Divided we fall. 
<laughs> I think a, I've heard of this book, but I've not. It's two years I've old. I've not read the any details about it like this. Which before. is it's actually kind of. And you've read this? Uh, yes, I just mm-hmm. just finished it. It uh, it was written in 2020, uh, and it was a year before the January 6th issues. Uh, which is very interesting because some of the scenarios he talks about are all very prophetic of that. Uh, as again, I, I highly recommend it. Interesting. 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 Well, boys, I think we have uh, pummeled that expired equine pretty yeah, well. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Yep. Uh, good. Good show. Good show. Uh, again, yeah, I love these shows. It's this is this is my bread and butter. It really is. <coughs> I love it. Perfect. So, Francis. Well, part two, uh, you know, as what we're doing these days is we're we've talked about David Hume's quotations and explored those. We're going to talk about the man and how, in many respects, he is the linchpin guy. Now, you can make that argument about all of them in many ways, but this is the one that really decides let's kick this football hard, and he scores some serious touchdowns and changes the world. Look at Francis going all sports. I mean, he mangled it, but he did go sportsy. Well, you know, I mean. He, he kept it in the same sport. Yeah. yeah. It's not like he said, you know... Well, he kicked the football to a touchdown. Oh, well, yes, yes, okay. that's true, yes. Well, yeah. all right, but field goal, yes, I understand. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I it was know. returned for a touchdown. Returned for a touchdown. Okay, yes. let's, let's just skip a bit, brother. <laughs> Join us next time, folks, where we talk about David Hume and his philosophy. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.